Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to 77977. Enjoy this week's lesson. Have you ever looked evil in the face? Years ago when I was a youth pastor, I took a team of students and adult leaders down to the Navajo Reservation in Arizona. We were gonna do a week of work projects and kid camps. It went really smoothly. It was an awesome week until the last night. Uh, we had the, the girls staying in one area and sleeping bags on the floor and the boys staying in another area, sleeping bags on the floor. And I was awakened 2.30, 3 a.m. by my wife who was over me, which was a surprise because she was supposed to be over in the girls' area. And I kind of woke up out of a deep sleep and she's like, what are you doing? Why are you sleeping? Do you, do you know what's going on? So I quickly computed that there was something going on. And, and as I got up and looked around and saw chaos, it, it quickly uh, became real to me that we were under, our team was under spiritual attack. Uh, we were working with a, a church on the Navajo Reservation. The The sister of the, the pastor of the church uh, was involved in some kind of evil business and came with her kids uh, in the middle of the night and entered the places we were sleeping without permission and began to pray kind of like evil incantations over our students and over our adults, even at some points kind of praying right over them. That had happened a half an hour before my wife woke me up, and I woke up and found just complete chaos, and it, it, had, it had totally affected our team, and uh, there were students that had kind of shooken it off and were just confused and scared, and, and then there were students that were just kind of like not totally there. They were kind of walking around, and, and it was one of those instances where you could feel evil. You could... You could see it. You could smell it. That I remember that the hairs on the back of my neck were standing up. I immediately knew uh, two things. I knew I needed to turn on the lights. It was dark, and and evil seems to run wild in the dark. And two, I knew we needed to pray. We needed to pray over our students and our adults in the victorious name of Jesus. So I quickly gathered my wife and and the other mature leaders, and we huddled up. And we went out and we spent the next couple hours uh, praying with everything we had uh, to, to Jesus. And, uh, and things began to subside and get better. And, and, and the, the, the pastor heard what was going on and came out and, and confronted his sister. And I still remember what he said. He told her that, that he, as the pastor, was a spiritual authority over the space and this land. And, and he asked her to leave in the name of Jesus. It was, it was a powerful moment. I've never in all my years, uh, almost 50 years, long time following Jesus, ever experienced something so otherworldly. I'd never experienced uh, evil in such an incarnate way. I had learned about evil in, in seminary. I had preached sermons on evil, but I had never come face to face with evil. Have you ever come face to face with evil? When we do, we live in a world full of evil. How do we pray? Jesus tells us how to pray when we're confronted with evil. We're in the fourth week of a series on the Lord's Prayer, simply called 
learning to pray. And the Lord's Prayer is uh, for those of us who have no clue how to pray, which is most of us. And Jesus knew that, had compassion on us, and gives us this prayer as a model. It's a catalyst for our prayers. It's also a guardrail for our prayers to keep our prayers centered on what God wants us to pray for. The Lord's Prayer consists of six petitions. Uh, We've covered all of them except uh, for the last one, which we will explore uh, today. Throughout the series, we've encouraged you to memorize the Lord's Prayer and to pray it once a day. So maybe you haven't been able to be faithful in that. It's never too late to start that practice, to take the gift of knowing the Lord's Prayer by heart into your life as we as we complete this series uh, next week. So we'll have Chris Davison uh, praying and reciting the Lord's Prayer for us today. I want to encourage you as Chris prays the prayer. If you know it, if you've been working on it, pray it along with her. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Great. Thanks, Chris. Let's dive in right away into that sixth petition. It's the one that's most easily misunderstood. It's difficult to understand at face value how it's translated. Pope Francis recently made headlines by saying, I I think we should change the wording of this, lead us not into temptation. It's confusing. It suggests that God is the one that pushes us into temptation, and we know God does not do that. Uh, That's the devil's business, and and, and that's accurate. He's got a point. Uh, So what does this mean? When I get to complex uh, pieces of scripture, I like to start by saying, well, what does it not mean? So here's what it it does not mean. It does not mean that God can tempt us. Uh, We we pray, lead us not into temptation. The initial thought is that we're praying for God not to tempt us. And we know clearly from other scriptures that is not the case. Uh, Let me give you one example that's crystal clear from the book of James Uh, James writes, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Crystal clear, that's not what we're praying. Secondly, what does this not mean? This does not mean that we're praying and asking God uh, to remove us from the possibility of temptation. We live in a world that, that God's constructed where there's free will and needed for love. And in that world, there are temptations. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about in just a second how God allowed his son Jesus to face temptations. Jesus said he faced all kinds of temptations, but did not sin. So we live in a world with temptations. We will confront them. We're not praying for God to remove us from that possibility. Uh, so what are we praying? If we're not praying that, what are we praying? Well, let's dive into that. And I think to, to understand, we need to get context with the book of Matthew. Matthew is, is one entity. It's one book. So he's writing within a context. So let's go to two points where the same word, the same Greek word translated tempt is used. One precedes the Lord's Prayer, and it's when Jesus is, is taking into the wilderness, uh, led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness and, and tempted. So Matthew 4, 1 says this, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. There's our word, by the devil. We can note two things. One, the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness, but God did not do the tempting. Uh, The devil did the tempting, and thankfully, Jesus stood strong and did not bow the knee to the devil, did not give in to that temptation. Jesus emerged from the 40 days in the wilderness 
victorious. Second usage in Matthew of this key word, uh, Greek word for temptation, is found near the end where Jesus is in the garden. Uh, he is facing the cross. He is, knows what's going to be asked of him, and it's overwhelming him physically. He's, he's, he's breaking down physically and, and literally uh, shedding tears of, of blood. Uh, picture all the forces of evil gathered, ready to descend in mass on Jesus. That's the weight of what he is facing. And then he finds his disciples and they're, they're dozing off. And this is what he says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into, here's our word, temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus tells his disciples um, essentially to pray that they'll never face what he's about to face, the full frontal assault of hell. So what does this mean when we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one? What are we praying? We're not praying, uh, God, don't, don't, don't tempt me. God doesn't tempt us. That's the devil's business. And we're not praying, God, remove us from all possibility of temptations. Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin. We're praying, God, help us, because as Jesus said, we're not Jesus. <laughs> Our flesh is weak. And if we face the full frontal assault of hell like Jesus did in the wilderness and like Jesus did on the cross, we will almost certainly fall apart from God's grace and provision and presence uh, with us. So essentially, um, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, uh, God, deliver us from facing the same type of temptation uh, that Jesus faced in the wilderness and Jesus faced in, in the garden. Um, Essentially, at the heart of this prayer, when we pray prayers, we pray words, but there's a, a heart posture behind them. When we pray, lead us not in temptation, I want us to think of it as, as simply a, a confession of weakness. Jesus said that key line uh, that's connected to that, that word temptation. Uh, he's like, I'm about to go face this on your behalf, but pray that you don't have to because your flesh is weak. So when we, when we pray that line, lead us not in temptation, it's, it's a confession that we are weak apart from God. One of my favorite stories is of Muhammad Ali. He was a, a talented and gifted heavyweight boxer, um, won many titles, and he, he kind of had this bravado and this confidence about him as well. And as the story goes, uh, he's, he's flying on an airplane, and they're about to take off, and the flight attendant comes down the aisle and uh, says, uh, sir, uh, put on your seatbelt. And he turns to her, and he said, uh, Superman don't need a seatbelt. And she quickly responded, Superman don't need an airplane. Buckle up, sir. And it's just such a funny story and a great retort. Uh, we pray that way. We, we pray often, and we carry ourselves because we're told to with this kind of false confidence and bravado, and maybe we carry that into our prayer lives. I know I do sometimes. And I give God maybe the little small things around the edges, but I got it. I got it, God, and maybe help me with these little things. And we pray, lead us not into temptation. We're just admitting that apart from God's presence and provision, we're toast. And we're saying, God, God, help us when we face temptations, when we, when we face the evil one. Help us not to fall. My daughter Eden the other day, uh, out of the blue, kind of asked me, Dad, do you know the, the poem uh, Footprints in the Sand? It's kind of a famous poem by, by Carolyn Cardi. And I remembered him when she immediately asked me, I'm like, yeah, I know that. And I'd read it as a kid and, and off and on through my adult life. And I'm not sure who presented it to her or where she came across it, but she was captivated by it and kind of told me the story. And if you're unfamiliar with it, or maybe if you are, look back and check it out. It, it's, it's really brilliant. And essentially, it, it's a short little poem about a, a, a man that has a dream. And in the dream, he's, he's, with, he's walking with, with God on a beach. And, and he's kind of also like looking back at his life. And so 
in the dream, he's comforted when he sees the, the two sets of footprints, you know, kind of God walking with him there, the presence, he's feeling good. But then as he, as he looks closer, he's alarmed when he sees at the, at the most uh, troubling times of his life, the most challenging times of his life, there's only one set of footprints. So in the poem, he, he asked God, uh, like, what's up with that? <laughs> like, why did you bail on me? Like, when things got really hard. And God just simply responded, those were the times I was carrying you. And like, what a powerful image and an idea. And when we pray, Lord, lead us not in temptation, we're praying, God, carry me. <laughs> we're acknowledging that in the toughest times, when we're facing temptation, when we're facing the evil one, that we need God to carry us. This is magnified and amplified in the second part of this petition when we see who's behind the temptation. The temptation is, or, or the, the line is, but deliver us from the evil one. Years ago, as a, as a youth pastor, I think I was an intern then, we took a bunch of uh, middle schoolers whitewater rafting in the New River Gorge in, in West Virginia. It was a guided trip, you know, 10, 12 people in a raft, pretty intense rapids. And uh, we were going through the most intense one. I think it was a, a level four rapids. And um, they coach us on what to do if you get tossed and stuff like that. So we went through this rapid. And sure enough, our, our boat our boat high-sided. And when that happens, it, it flips the boat like a pretzel. And I was in the back half. So me and the whole back half got thrown out into this really raucous, like, like rapid, like level four rapid. I still remember this is like 40 years ago, uh, 30 years ago. And, and I came up immediately and hit my head on the bottom of the raft, which was was frightening. Uh, the next time I bobbed up, I was maybe 12, 15 feet away, uh, going the other way, kind of getting busted up against the rocks. And I remembered at that point that God said, if you get th thrown out, look to the raft and I'll throw a life preserver. So I remembered that and I looked kind of in anguish <laughs> to, the, to the raft and sure enough, there's the faithful guide with the life preserver. He saw me, he looked at me, he pointed at me and he threw it. I grabbed a hold of it and they pulled me uh, to safety. Uh, this word, deliver us, it, it, the, the Greek word literally means to rescue. It's a powerful, impactful word. It's not like, hey, help me along the edges of my life with these sort of non-consequential things. It's a full-on rescue mission. That's what we're asking. We're prayed to be delivered. It's not a minor thing. When Jesus' earliest followers would have heard this line, they would have instantly thought, because most of them were Jewish, they would have thought of the 400 years that, that, that God's people were enslaved uh, in Egypt. And, and they, would, they would remember uh, Moses, let my people go, and, and being a set free in the exodus of God's people. But as we track that story, they would also remember and know that as, after they spent 40 years in the wilderness, they made it into the promised land, but they quickly lost their way. And we're told in, in the history of God's people that once they made it to the promised land, that, that they pretty quickly went to follow evil, demonic forces and foreign gods that just ripped the nation apart. They, they got free from physical enslavement and entered spiritual enslavement. And then here we come and we have Jesus. And a, and a lot of scholars have noted that Jesus uh, was kind of reliving the story, if you will, that Jesus was leading a, a second exodus. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, at the very beginning of his life, entered the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days, and this time emerged victorious and would ultimately emerge victorious on the cross, offering exodus and freedom from enslavement 
to anyone and everyone who would look to him. We see this imagery in Paul's letters where we talk about we're enslaved to sin and that we were enslaved to a dominion of darkness. That's what he writes in the letter uh, to the Colossians. So this is no small prayer. This is a prayer with incredible gravity to it. The admittance that we're enslaved and we need to be rescued and delivered and set free. It suggests the weak state that we're in apart from God and our need for God's grace and deliverance. Who are we enslaved by? Uh, well, we're enslaved by sin, but we're also enslaved by this evil one. Now, if you did a quick uh, Google search, and there's some websites you can do this, and you just put in, uh, you know, Matthew six thirteen you would see that it, this Greek word is translated two ways. It's about half and half if you look at a bunch of different translations. About half of them just translated evil, and you might have memorized the Lord's Prayer that way. And the other half, evil one, sometimes it's capitalized. That's because this Greek word could be translated either way, and, and translators go both ways. Um, I feel pretty strongly that it should be translated evil one. Again, going back to looking at it within the context of Matthew. So Matthew's writing this, and he's recording it, when Jesus is tempted right prior to the Lord's Prayer in the wilderness, he's not tempted by just evil, some non-personal entity of evil, but he's tempted by the evil one, by the devil. And so there's one point. And, and, and then secondly, throughout Matthew's gospel, this phrase evil one is used several times, and it's always used to talk about this personal force of evil, this personified evil, if you will. So I feel pretty strongly that when we say it, uh, we, we should say evil one. So a couple things. Let's just take a minute. Maybe I can do this in three or four minutes. We'll see. You can time me. Uh, but I want to kind of step away for a second and look at this concept of the evil one, because we have tons of misconceptions about who this evil one is through pop culture and, and whatnot. So I just want to step away and just kind of look at this phrase and this personification of evil uh, across scripture, and then we'll come back and input that into, into our prayer. So one, uh, we're introduced to the evil one, this personified evil in the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis 3, in the form of a serpent. And then we frankly don't see much of the evil one, this personified evil, throughout the Old Testament. Bits and pieces, glimpses, but not a lot. I mean, there's plenty of evil. The evil one emerges, though, all over the pages of the New Testament. Kind of, you can kind of look at the evil one as the villain of the New Testament, the, the, the adversary of Jesus, the, the literal anti-Jesus or anti-Christ. So um, here, are some, here are four primary names for the personified evil, if you will, uh, this person of evil, this person behind the evil that the New Testament writers use. I tried to, I could give you tons of citations, but I tried to focus on Matthew where I could. So one is, uh, is Satan, and the, the word, the, the Hebrew word, uh, Satan, is, is uh, this is a transliteration of that. And Satan, in the Hebrew word, often isn't this personified evil, capital S. It just means adversary and adversary. But the writers of the New Testament bring that in and transliterate it into the Satan, this personified evil. It's used 36 times, and uh, the Satan, as we say it, uh, has a kingdom. Uh, that's kind of the key component of the Satan. Secondly, devil. We're familiar with that. Uh, devil literally means uh, slanderer, um, uh, the adversary of Jesus in the pages of Scripture. Three, uh, Beelzebub, which means uh, prince of demons. And then four, the term used in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the evil one. And that's used uh, 12 times in uh, the New Testament. Some other descriptions of this personified evil or the evil one, uh, the tempter, uh, father of lies, 
uh, disguised as an angel of light, the enemy, ruler of this world, prince of the power of the air, God of this world. We're clearly told in the story of the New Testament that Jesus and this, this evil one are going head to head in this titanic battle. And Jesus prophesies in Luke of, of, of a scene of Satan falling like lightning from heaven. And that's, that's what's going to happen is, is the kingdom of heaven comes to the kingdom of earth. Jesus will defeat Satan. Jesus will defeat the evil one. We see that in, in the final pages of scripture in this titanic battle between good and evil. Uh, Jesus defeats Satan and, and all of the evil spirits and minions and forever banishes them. But until that comes, the evil one and all the evil spirits are incredibly destructive and dangerous. Uh, we see evidence of this in warnings in the New Testament. First Peter 5, 8 says this, be alert and of sober mind, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Uh, or we think of Jesus' own words, the thief, he's referring to, to the evil one, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That should chill you. That should get our attention. Mike uh, last week talked about the Rwandan war, uh, the genocide that took place uh, where uh, over, uh, uh, um, I, I can't remember the, the number he gave, millions upon millions of, of Tutsi uh, people were slaughtered uh, in, a, in a massive genocide in a 100-day period. Uh, Canadian General uh, Romeo Dallier, he's commander of the UN uh, assistance mission, arrived on the scene right after those 100 days of just utter mayhem and utter, utter bloodshed. I can't imagine what he witnessed. And as he uh, toured the country and, and he began to see what had happened over those hundred days, uh, this is what he said. He said, in, in Rwanda, I shook hands with the devil. I've seen him, I've smelled him, and I've touched him. We are, we're praying to be delivered from, from that. So, Let's go back. What, what are we saying here? When we pray, uh, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us in the evil one, what are we saying? What's the heart prayer behind that? The heart prayer is this. We're acknowledging that there is evil within. In Jesus' terms, the, the flesh is weak. G.K. Chesterton, a British author, writer, pretty funny guy, astute theologian, he's quoted a lot. But he said once, uh, the idea that there's, there's sin embedded in the human heart is the one Christian theology that can be proved. <laughs> I mean, it's on full display everywhere. It's certainly on full display in, in my life. Uh, Jesus said the things that defile us come out of our heart. Uh, the Apostle Paul, well into his life of following Jesus, says this, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner. There's that enslavement metaphor of the law of sin that is at work within me. There's evil within. When we pray, lead us not in temptation, we're saying, my flesh is weak. We need to be, I need to be carried, God. If I go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the evil one in temptation, I'm toast. Help me. There's evil within. But we're also, as the second half of the petition uh, plays out, we're, we're acknowledging and recognizing that there is, is, is evil without. In the first century context, I'm studying a lot of this in, in, the, in, the, in the doctor program I'm going through right now. Um, the first century Greco-Roman world in which the earliest followers of Jesus grew up, in which Jesus taught and lived, 
um, there weren't like religions or this person's spiritual. Everybody was spiritual. Everything was a religion. There was tons of gods everywhere. And, and they believed in like, there was really kind of not much of a barrier between the supernatural world and the natural world. It was really hard to find an atheist. Uh, they were well aware of evil and goodness and, and supernatural entities and all of that. Uh, archaeological evidence, uh, relatively recently we found evidence that the earliest Christians would write on little pieces of paper this petition, Matthew 6.13, and we, we assume that they did that because they would put it in their pocket and take it with them, well aware of the world they were walking into as a reminder of what is at stake. Uh, one of my favorite little books uh, growing up as I began to understand some of these concepts is by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. Some of you may have read The Screwtape Letters. Some of you, if you have, you need to go back and read it again. If you've never read The Screwtape Letters, my pastoral challenge and homework assignment to you is to go find it and read it. It's very short, very provocative, and brilliant. So in the preface to the Screwtape Letters, and essentially it's, it's a series of letters, uh, fictional letters, obviously, between uh, kind of this chief demon Screwtape and his apprentice Wormwood on how to operate effectively as a demon. Uh, here's what Lewis says in the preface. I think it's brilliant. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So what Lewis is saying is that when it comes to the supernatural realm and, and the existence of the evil one and evil spirits and evil, we can make two mistakes. We can overestimate the power of the evil one, or we can underestimate the power of the evil one. We can overestimate by just living in utter fear. We get out of bed in the morning and we're just thinking there's demons everywhere and, and we have no chance and we're just balled up and we're a mess. Followers of Jesus should not operate that. We, we don't, we're not people of fear, we're people of love, and we operate in a place of victory as we're connected to King Jesus who has been victorious. So but I don't think there's, there's too many of us, maybe there are, but I don't think there's too many of us in a modern Western post-enlightenment time that are overestimating the power of the evil one. I think most of us struggle with underestimating that there can be, this is true of me, hours, days, maybe weeks sometimes, if I can be honest and confess, that I don't think about that reality of the supernatural realm. Um, you know, the battle is won, but until the battle's fully won, and, and it, that won't be for a while, the destruction that the evil one can cause in our lives and the mayhem is very, very real. Paul says it this way, uh, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's not against humans largely, but against the rulers. We think these are kind of categories of, of evil spirits, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. When we minimize or ignore the evil one in his work, we do so at our own uh, peril. It's exactly what the evil one wants us to do. So here's a little small little snippet of one of the letters that Screwtape writes to Wormwood. It says this, my dear Wormwood, I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient, that would be all of us, uh, in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. 
If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. Brilliant. I hope that causes you to read, read the book. When we think of the devil or Satan or the evil one in kind of this red onesie with, with horns and a tail, it's exactly, it's falling right into the hands of the evil one. When, when the only time we think of, of devil or devilish is when it comes to decadent dessert, uh, we are living dangerously and we are living foolishly. Uh, evil is absolutely at work in our lives and in our world. And we can see evidence of that everywhere we look, if we're willing to look. We saw it on full display in Rwanda. Uh, we see it on full display uh, over periods such as like Nazi Germany. I'm reading a Bonhoeffer biography right now, and it's shocking how quickly a Christian, modern, brilliant, scientifically enlightened culture shifted to utter lunacy and utter depravity and other evil. It was like that. We see it on full display, the evil one there. We saw it on full display on, on the steps and inside our Capitol building a few weeks ago. Um, we see it on full display if we look pretty much anywhere and everywhere in the crevices of our society and maybe even in our homes, shockingly. When we, when we look at people's behavior sometimes and we think, what are they thinking? Or you just see that look on people's face of just like rage and anger and lunacy. There's usually something else going on. There's more than meets the eye. Eugene Peterson uh, translates this petition. So if you're struggling with the translation of the petition, think of it, you could say it like this. I love this translation from the message. Uh, Peterson says, uh, keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. That's, that's essentially what we're asking. We say, lead us not in temptation, deliver us from evil. Peterson says, well, we can pray, just keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. Uh, or, or, or I would say it this way, only God can deliver us from the evil within and the evil without. Only God can deliver us from the evil within and the evil without. Only God. And we pray that line in the Lord's Prayer should have that passion and that fervency behind it. And the truth is, we can pray that with confidence because we know that, that Jesus bore all of my considerable sin and all of your considerable sin and all the sins of the world so that we don't have to. That's the hope of the cross. That's the victory of the cross and the hope of the gospel. Jesus faced the evil one head on in the wilderness and then on the cross when he's shedding tears of blood, he faced so that we wouldn't have to. So that as we look to him, we're victorious and we stay in lockstep. And at times, we just need him to carry us. We need him to hold us and walk with us through it. One set of footprints. That's why John reminds us that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. When I was a kid, I, I read another book along with uh, screw tape letters that begin to kind of fill out uh, the shape of how I viewed how the world worked in the supernatural realm. Because I was just a young kid trying to figure it out. And it's a book called This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti. Some of you may be familiar with it. I can't remember too much about it. There was a numerous ones and uh, I'm reticent to maybe recommend it because I don't remember everything. But I remember it really helped. And it was a fiction book. I remember the narrative was a small church pastor who was, who was passionate about prayer. And the small church pastor was on his knees and on his face before the Lord for his people, for his family constantly. And as a pastor now bearing that weight, I, I think about that all the time. At a young age, it helped form out in my mind what it was like to pastor. But Peretti did a great job of showing 
how the supernatural world and the battles happening there intersect with the natural world and that our prayers make a difference. I don't understand how it all works, but our prayers affect what's going on there in a powerful way. So saying this line and admitting the existence of evil and the evil one and the destructive work in our world should be a catalyst to pray. Back to that night on the Navajo reservation. Um, I, it, it was chaotic and I'd, I'd probably be lying to you to say it, it points I was it maybe a little scared, but to be honest with you, um, once I kind of felt the, the hairs raised on my neck and I sensed the evil that was going on, kind of that pastor protector side of me came, came to life. And I remember peace that passes understanding. That's why I'm confident the Holy Spirit was there that night. And I remember, as I said at the top of the message, that we just needed to pray. And we needed to pray in the name of Jesus and that that would bring victory over the evil. And that wasn't because I was some kind of special pastor. I was, I was just kind of probably a mess of a pastor. Didn't know what, really what I was doing. But I knew that we were praying to the one who was victorious the one who, who, would, who, would, who would grant us victory because victory has already been accomplished. So essentially when we're praying deliver us from evil, we're praying with confidence because in effect, Jesus already has. We, uh, we end the Lord's Prayer when we say it at least with this doxology for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. I don't know how many of you have noticed, but uh, it's not in mo- most of your Bibles. Maybe you haven't noticed that. Most of your Bibles have a footnote, and you can go there now and click on it, and it'll, it'll, it'll show it there, but it's not in there, and, and it's been removed from most of our Bibles. So really quick on that. Uh, that's because it's not in the very earliest and best Greek manuscripts we have, and, and that's a whole other topic. Uh, so it, it got removed, but so how did that make its way in? It, it is in some Greek manuscripts from like the 5th century and, and on. Uh, here's what we think happened. Here's what scholars think happened is that uh, it was typical in Jewish prayers when you would say a prayer publicly to have a doxology that you tag on the end. So this Lord's Prayer uh, was, was really meant to be prayed publicly, and the early followers of Jesus prayed it publicly all the time. We know that from the Didache and, 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 and other early church documents. And so we're thinking when they were praying it, as most of them were Jewish and came from a Jewish heritage, they tagged a doxology on the end of it. And doxologies are just kind of giving glory to God and ending on the high note. And this doxology, if it sets your mind at ease, comes from Scripture. It comes from First Chronicles 29, uh, 11 through 13. So I guess my point is, even though it's not in Matthew, it is in some later manuscripts. I think it's totally appropriate when we say the prayer together, and we have then, to say the doxology, to join with this long history that calls God our Father. And, and we pray on this prayer of victory. And, and it's definitely fitting coming off this line, but deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. When we pray that and we reflect back on the prayer that we're praying, uh, we are acknowledging and we're praying that, that, that our Father is the one who is bringing heaven to earth, that, that our Father is the one who, who, who gives us daily bread, that our Father is the one who forgives my debts and your debts and equips us then to go out and forgive the debts of others, that our Father is the one that keeps us from falling in the toughest times, even carrying us if need be. And our Father is the one who delivers us from evil. Hallowed be your name. And all God's people said,
Let's pray. God, thank you uh, so much for your goodness and your grace and your faithfulness to us that's on full display in this petition. When we pray, uh, lead us not in temptation, but uh, deliver us from evil. We are acknowledging the evil within. We're acknowledging, as Jesus said, oh, your flesh is weak. Uh, and, and, and God, when, when we're praying, deliver us from the evil one, we're acknowledging the potential that we can become enslaved by the dominions of darkness. And we can't go toe-to-toe with the evil one, but in you, we are victorious. And in you, you will deliver us because you have delivered us, God. And so we pray from a place of weakness, but also a place of strength and, and also a place of incredible victory, God, that was had in your son Jesus on the cross on my behalf and on our behalf, God. God, as we reflect back on this prayer, I pray that this prayer would would sink deeply into our bones and would form us and shape us to become the type of people that you have created us to be for your glory, God. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.